0: So now we come back to the Gospel of Matthew as we are looking to continue our sermon series entitled, All Hail the King. Because Matthew, of course, presents Jesus as the King of all kings. The King to whom we should submit in faith. The King to whom we should give our lives because when we do, when we are lose our lives in Him, we find it. We find the mercy and forgiveness that is ours. Our sermon text That we are coming to when we left off before the Christmas season was in Matthew 16 or 17, rather, uh, verse 22. And I'll admit, this is kind of one of those texts that when I looked at it, I thought, hmm, you know, it's been four weeks. We probably could just skip this one, jump right to Matthew 18. But I I do want to, I think it's good for us to work through all of Scripture, and so we're going to consider it this morning. So beginning in Matthew 17, verse 22, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, saying, What do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that. And give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. And a well-known quote, which I'm sure everybody has heard, is it's often attributed to Benjamin Franklin, though we don't know exactly where it came from. And that is, the only thing that is certain in this world is death and taxes. And of course, as believers, as Christians, we know there are actually things that are far more certain than death and taxes. And we know that Christ may return at any moment. And so death is not certain. However, the whimsical wit of Franklin certainly isn't lost on us. We understand where he was coming from. Now, our text this morning is actually about death and taxes, the death of Christ and an ancient temple tax. And and when you read it, it, it almost feels out of place in Matthew's gospel. I mean, after all, the, the Gospel of Matthew is about K- the King, Jesus Christ, and how he's building his kingdom in this world by calling people to faith in himself. And when we, uh, while we, we, we have considered his death, he, he's talked about that already, and his resurrection. This little discourse on taxes, well, this is, this is something new. We haven't seen this before. I mean, what do taxes have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, to start, this little story isn't so much about paying taxes or not paying taxes. Rather, Jesus' intention here is to teach us what it means to be truly free. I mean, freedom is such a lovely word. It's cherished just about everyone in the world and yet, because we live in that time, that window of time between the first advent of Christ and the second, we know that uh, or freedom isn't universally enjoyed. And moreover, those of us that do have freedom often to fail to understand what we really have. As Christians living where we do in the world, we are blessed with immeasurable freedom to worship God and to live our lives according to our consciences. Now, it's possible that that freedom, at least from a political and social perspective, might be changing. If it does, we should not be surprised by that. Uh, after all, Jesus says, If the world hates me, don't be surprised if they hate you. It's natural. But no matter how oppressive civil magistrates may be, or how hostile culture and society may become towards those who are the children of God, nothing, absolutely nothing, can take away the freedom that is ours in the gospel. The freedom that comes through the forgiveness of sins, through a right relationship with God, through our mediator, Jesus Christ. In fact, the only way that we limit that freedom is when we limit it ourselves. And Jesus addresses two ways that we do that in this text. There are two problems and there is one solution. So we're going to look at those two problems first. We're going to get the bad news out of the way And then we're going to see the good news, the solution. So the the first problem that we see is this, is that sometimes, even though we are free, we believe we are obligated to do things from which we are actually free of. Jesus and his little band of disciples, they've, they've been continuing their journey southward towards Jerusalem. Towards the the climax of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And they are coming to this region again of Capernaum. They've been here before. And Jesus and his disciples are approached by some tax collectors. Um, And I would imagine for some of the disciples their reaction would probably be like ours. When we are approached by tax collectors or a letter from the IRS in the mail. (laughs) It's not something you, you delight in receiving. But the tax these two men are collecting, or these tax collectors are collecting, is called the the two drachma tax, and that's an important distinction that Matthew makes. What's this two drachma tax? Well, it's not an imperial tax or duty. It didn't come down from Rome. It's not designed to pay for the imperial roads or the Rome's legions or or benefit the empire in any way. Instead, this is a tax of the temple in Jerusalem, a temple tax. It was designed to help support the priests and maintain the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. And this tax, though it had changed throughout the years, actually goes all the way back to the tabernacle, that temporary temple in the wilderness that God's people used to worship him. And here's what we read about this tax when it was instituted. This is from Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses, Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. Then the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Now, through the passage of time and as history marches on, the people of Israel changed how they went about this, this two drachma tax or this half shekel tax. Uh, and like all of God's commandments, it was twisted and corrupted and in fact, when we see Jesus later driving the money changers out of the temple, what uh, those money changers were involved with this, this two drachma tax. Uh, so we see there's this, definitely this corruption of this law. Now the Pharisees like they did with many laws, they, they actually added to this this particular ceremonial law and had other requirements involved with it. They were very much in favor of this tax. However, the other prominent religious sects, the Sadducees, probably despite the Pharisees, uh, they thought that this tax was not obligatory and they refused to pay it. And they encouraged others to, to follow in their example. Another religious community amongst the Jewish people, the, the Qumran community from which we have the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, they taught, well, this tax is only to be paid once in a person's lifetime. And so this tax is controversial. It's, it's evolved over the centuries. Many people, though, in Israel viewed it as their patriotic duty to pay this tax on a yearly basis. I mean, if you are a good, devout, Jewish man, you were going to pay the two drachma tax. After all, it wasn't going to Rome. It was going to Jerusalem. It was done to spite Rome, to keep the temple worship going in the face of of Roman oppression. And it wasn't a very heavy tax at all, like those coming from Rome. It was around the equivalent of just two days wages. So if you really cared about the nation of Israel, if you really wanted to spite Rome, you would do your duty and you would pay the tax to show your devotion to God. So when these temple tax collectors come to Peter, they asked if his master or literally his rabbi paid this tax. I mean, after all, he's he's a, he's a, a teacher and he's Jewish. He would... He would surely want you to pay this tax, wouldn't he? And Peter answers with a very enthusiastic, Well, yes, of course. Of course he would pay this tax. We'll we'll pay it. And his eager answer, though, demonstrated that, that he was of the persuasion that this tax was obligatory, that it was absolutely necessary. I mean, Jesus was the king after all, the son of God, Who is God with us? Why wouldn't he pay his tax? Didn't he want to build his kingdom here? Isn't that what he's been talking about since we've been with him all this time? Wouldn't he be able to uh, show his devotion to the Father in a very practical way through this temple tax? So yeah, of course he'd pay it. But Peter was actually wrong in thinking that it was obligatory. Because Peter... As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, was actually free from this obligation. You see, temple worship was coming to an end; it was changing because a new and better temple had come. That was Jesus Christ, and so Jesus takes Peter aside, as he always does, so gently, and shepherds his bold disciple. And he asks Peter, he says, Peter, what? What do your Simon? What do you think? What are your thoughts? When the kings of the earth take a tax or a toll, do they take it from their sons or from somebody else? And Peter probably didn't have to think hard. He just said, well, from from somebody else. And so then Jesus explains, well, then the sons are free. You see, the king's family is royalty they don't have to pay a tax. They're not ob- obliged to do so. It would be unthinkable and cruel for an earthly magistrate to tax his own children. They're free from the tax. And how much more than are the sons of the heavenly king, Peter, how much more are they free from obligations like paying this temple tax? As Paul tells us in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Peter thought he was obligated to something. It was really only a shadow pointing to a greater reality. I mean, the temple was. A symbol. It was a place where God's people could commune uh, with Him. But it was so limited. They needed a priest. There were all sorts of ceremonies they had to, to go through uh, to be able to fellowship with God. And even then, they did not have access to the holiest place. But Jesus has already told us in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 12, that something greater than the temple. Is here. That something is Christ himself. The greater temple. And so he allows those who are his sons. And his daughters. Part of his royal family. To have access to the presence of God. There's no need to pay. To maintain an earthly temple. When the greater temple is here. I mean why pay a tax to maintain a symbol. Or a shadow when the reality to which it points was right there and could be known, the king's sons and the king's daughters are free. And if you are in Christ by faith alone, that is your condition. You are free from the curse of the law. Sometimes, though, as believers... We don't live like we are in that freedom that the gospel gives. Sometimes we burden ourselves and sometimes others with obligation after obligation, which has no basis in the gospel. We either create a new law, a new means of being sanctified, or or we twist God's law into something it cannot do to become the means of our justification, our righteousness before God. We create a new law when we, when we want to be culturally relevant, when we want to make the, the gospel palatable to all people, or feel as if uh, we need to take part of the social conscience. And so we create a new law, a new requirement. If you're really a Christian, you're going to do this, X, Y, Z. We also create a new law when we front load God's law with our own uh, our own preferences and our own personal convictions and turn them into a law that we impose upon others. And we twist God's law by trying to use it for something for which it was never intended, our justification. Usually when we do that, we, like the Pharisees, come up with our own code to keep through our own effort to make ourselves righteous through the law. But righteousness can never come to us by the law, only condemnation of our unrighteousness. Righteousness comes only through Christ. And so sometimes we, like Peter, we believe we are obligated to do things from which we are actually free. And we burden ourselves and others, and we become discouraged and depressed when we keep failing to meet those standards that we have crafted. But there's another problem in our text. The second problem is the opposite of binding ourselves or others to things from which we are actually free. This comes when we actually know we are free in the gospel. And that is this, is that sometimes we hurt others by insisting on our freedom rather than by showing the love of Christ. After explaining to Peter that he is free from paying the temple tax because the greater temple was there, who is Jesus, he tells him this in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you do, open its mouth and you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus says that while he and Peter were certainly free from having to pay this temple tax, they would nevertheless go ahead and pay it. So as, as he says, not to give offense To those who thought it was necessary. And that word offense is really interesting that Jesus uses. It's the very same word that we find in Matthew 15 uh, to describe the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' teaching when he said, It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, rather, that what comes out, out from the heart. And the Pharisees were offended or literally scandalized by that. And this incident, though, Jesus doesn't want to create a scandal. He doesn't want to create offense. So what's the difference? Why in Matthew 15 did he have no problem saying, hey, I... If the Pharisees are offended, that's their problem. And now he says, hey, let's not create an offense. Well, you see, it had to do with the issue at hand. It's different because back in Matthew 15, it was a matter of divine principle, a gospel truth. It is true that from the heart, a person is corrupt. Sin lies within and it spills out affecting all. We are evil because we are evil in our hearts. Hence, we need the grace of the gospel to clean us, to make us new, to make us righteous. But in this instant, paying or not paying the temple tax was just a matter of public custom by this point of popular perception. While it was unnecessary to comply to it, while the disciples were indeed free from the obligation of having to pay this, to insist upon not paying it would only cause confusion and unnecessary offense. And so if Jesus told Peter not to pay the tax, which he was free to do, those involved would needlessly be turned away from Christ. In other words, the gospel was more important than the freedom the disciples had. The gospel is enough of an offense on its own for us to have to create other stumbling stones by insisting on doing or not doing certain things that have nothing to do with the gospel. That's what Paul explains in first Corinthians. He says, the word of the cross, that's the gospel is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God for to the unbelieving mind. When they see the gospel, Unless the Spirit works in their hearts and convinces them of the truth, it's foolishness. It's offensive to say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth that because of that sin we all deserve the just judgment and wrath of God, that is offensive to many. It is a stumbling stone. The truth that we cannot do anything to remedy our own state in our own power because we are spiritually dead, bankrupt of any power to move towards God. Well, that is offensive to many. The truth that Christ suffered and died in our place so that we might be made righteous by grace through faith alone to many, that is a stumbling stone. It is offensive. So why add to that by boasting in the liberty that we do have in the gospel, That's what Peter is teaching here, or Jesus is teaching us here. I love the wisdom and gentleness of J.C. Ryle as he explains Christ's words here. He says, our Lord's example in this case deserves the attention of all who profess and call themselves Christians. There is deep wisdom in those five words, lest we should offend them. They teach us plainly that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and to submit to requirements which they may not thoroughly approve, rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. God's rights, undoubtedly, we ought never to give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to be always standing out tenaciously for our rights, But it may well be doubted with such a passage as this, whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. And of course, he goes on from there. He says, let us remember this passage as as members of society, that there may be usages and customs in the circle where our lot is cast which to us as Christians are tiresome, useless, and unprofitable. But are they matters of principle? Do they injure our souls? Will it do any good to the cause of religion if we refuse to comply with them? If not, let us patiently submit, lest we offend them. So there are the two problems. Sometimes we believe we're obligated to do things or not do things from which we are actually free and we may obligate others as well. And sometimes we hurt others by insisting upon our freedom when it would be wiser to show Christ minded love. And that's bad news, because as I look at my life, and I'm sure you look at our, your own, you would say, you know, I'm guilty of both of those as a Christian. I certainly have a tendency to want to bind people's consciences to my own, or bind my conscience to things that are not related to the gospel, things that I think will improve my standing before God. And certainly it is easy to cause needless offense by trumpeting the liberty that I enjoy in Christ when the wisdom of heaven tells me not to do so. I think that so many of our conflicts that we experience in life and, and so many of our disappointments and hurt relationships come from these two problems. I mean, Churches have been divided and lost over these two issues. People are further hardened to the freedom of the gospel by these problems. And the guilt of them leads us to feeling crippled in our shame and our sinfulness. But thanks be to God that Jesus is a good redeemer. He is a great rescuer. And we see him coming to our rescue even in this very text. You see, Jesus provides us all that we need to rest in the freedom of the gospel and to love others as we are called. And we see this overflowing grace of his providence in two ways in this little narrative. The first comes by way of another of his miracles. After telling Peter that, As a son of the king, you are free from the obligation of paying this temple tax, but to avoid offense, let's go ahead and pay it. He gives Peter these instructions. He says, Peter, here's what you should do. Go on down to the lake and go fishing. Uh, As a fisherman, I I love that. (laughs) And I'm sure Peter did as well. Go fishing, and the first fish you pull up, look into its mouth and you will find a shekel. Use that to pay my tax and your tax. I love how Jesus is meeting Peter where he is in his life. I mean, Peter is, after all, a fisherman by trade. He understands this. He's not asked to do something great. He said, just go fishing, Peter. And through that simple task, he finds the provision that he needs to pay the temple tax. In the fish's mouth, Peter will find what Matthew says is a shekel. You know how much a shekel is? It's four drachma. Now this tax for the temple is two drachma per person. So Jesus provides exactly the amount needed to pay for himself and for Peter. In other words, Jesus overcomes any potential offense by doing exactly what was needed. Not more and not less. He doesn't have to go above and beyond to pay this tax. He doesn't have to pay Say, four drachma or a shekel per person. I mean, to do that would be somewhat boastful, a a virtue signal of sorts, saying, look how devoted we really are. We're going to go above and beyond and pay even more. No, after all, they're free from this. They don't have to pay it. So he just meets the obligation. But he doesn't pay what is Uh, less than what is required as well. He doesn't give Peter only two drachma in the mouth of the fish, as if this sort of compliant, non-compliance, paying half the tax and protest. No, he gives him exactly what he has needed to avoid offense, and he moves on from there. But there's even a greater provision in this text to which it points us, greater than this miracle of the shekel in the fish's mouth. And it comes from the fact that this is a temple tax. The temple tax instituted within the ceremonial law of God given to Israel. Going back to Exodus 30, where we see this tax described, we find God uses some very interesting language. Listen to this. So the rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel, or two drachma, when you give the Lord's offering to make Atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord. So as to make atonement for your lives. So you see that word atonement, atonement, atonement. In fact, the tax was called the atonement money. To atone is to make a covering for sin. It means to cover over completely so as to remove from view. And the idea then is closely tied with forgiveness. If God is to forgive that sin must be removed. It must be covered. God in His holiness cannot look upon sin. And so an atonement is needed. Well, how did paying this temple tax result in atonement? I mean, wasn't there literally a sacrifice or offering of atonement in that ceremonial law? Yes, there was. And it was carried out every year. But what this tax was used for was to support the ministry of the priests And to maintain the temple where those sacrifices took place. Where that atonement happened. And those sacrifices of the Old Testament, all of them were simply signs and symbols. Because they could not ultimately atone for sin. In fact, the author of Hebrews explains they are done every year. Why? Because they're insufficient. Human effort cannot atone for sin. But they point to one final atonement, one final sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that is sin covering and justice satisfying for all time. So these sacrifices, they were a means of grace in the worship of the Mosaic covenant. And in a very practical way then, when the people would pay this atonement money, they were were paying To have their sins uh, forgiven. At least pictured in the giving of that money. But let's fast forward to Matthew's gospel. Because Jesus, as we see, is the better sacrifice, the greater sacrifice, greater than the temple. He is the person to which all those sacrifices has pointed. And now he is here. He has come. And what does he do with the atonement money that Peter was expected to pay? He pays it for him. He provides it through this miracle, through the mouth of the fish. So Peter doesn't have to reach into his own pockets and do his own savings and pay for this tax from which he was free. Jesus pays it for him. He completely satisfies all the requirements of the law that Peter could not So all Peter had to do was simply rest in the freedom of Christ that was granted to him because he was a son of the king. And so if you are a son or a daughter of the king by virtue of your trust in him, you are free from having to pay for any atonement money because the king has already paid it for you. And how did he pay it for you? through His own death and His resurrection. As He told His disciples, even here in Matthew 17, the Son of Man would be delivered to men, killed by them, but raised again on the third day. And so there you have it. Death and taxes. A law was required, an atoning tax, because our sins needed to be covered if we had any hope of being forgiven by God. And then that tax was paid by the blood of the Son of God dying on the cross for you. And so now when you find yourself being tempted to burden yourself or maybe someone else with obligations that you are free from, If you somehow feel you are still obligated to pay a tax in order to receive God's blessing, whatever that tax may be, your own good works, your own self-piety, whatever your personal temple tax is, know that it has been paid for already by Jesus Christ. You are free from it. The burden is gone. And so trust that atonement that Christ has provided Trust what he has done for you. He has given you all that you need so that you can trust him and love others. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our Savior. The one who made atonement for those who trust him. For those who completely lean upon him. All has been provided. Their sins are completely paid for. The debt is now canceled. And we have fellowship with you. I pray that you would continue to strengthen our hearts. Remind us of these things. Even as we are tempted to bind ourselves to, to other laws that we create. And even as we are tempted to use our freedom to, and give offense to others. Father, help us to look to Christ. To have the mind of him. And to be filled with his love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.